0: Welcome back, friends, to the Self-Care Unit podcast with Operation Happy Nurse and Don't Clock Out. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jaquinda Jackson, a licensed trauma-focused therapist who specializes in trauma therapy as well as mental health performance training, working to promote positive mental health practices in her patients. We are so grateful that she's taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Dr. Jackson, for being here. The Self-Care Unit
1: Podcast is here to provide a breath of fresh air, but also some educational resources to healthcare workers about mental health. And so I think a good place to start here, especially with Dr. Jackson here with us, is if you could define trauma for our listeners. I think it's one of those words that we're all familiar with, but we don't really understand. So what is trauma, Dr. Jackson?
2: So trauma, and I feel like it's... Now termed as something very bad, but even though, let me back up. So trauma is either something happening to you. It can be a car accident. It could be um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, also to de- death um, or even like a divorce. So a loss of something in which it impacts your ability to to like fully process through. Now on the flip side of that, secondary trauma is what a lot of people experience, but they don't term it as trauma because it's always, or people will always say like, it didn't happen to me. But the reality of it is, is secondary trauma is when somebody shares their story with you and, or if you are in a environment in which you repeatedly see people who are suffering with some type of illness or loss of some sort.
1: So that ties in great with with healthcare because we see some of the most difficult aspects of humanity, right? When disease strikes um, a person's body and it impacts not only that patient, but it also impacts anyone that they're directly involved with. So their family Mm -hmm. members, their friends, the people who rely on them for their basic needs, Um, so I think it's, I think it's great that we're talking to you about this and in particular trauma when it comes to, um, to healthcare. And I feel like we don't talk about, um, how our work impacts us and how it can traumatize us. Mm -hmm. Do you have any insight on that, Dr. Jackson?
2: Yes. And, and actually, um, oftentimes I struggle with defining secondary trauma, with individuals who work in the medical field because, you know, people say like, I signed up like, this is my job. This is what I chose to do. And although this is what, you know, you chose to do, you're still exposed to that. And because you are exposed to secondary trauma, it's so important that you take care of yourself to make sure that you don't lead into you know, what our, what we term compassion fatigue, where you work nonstop because again, this is your job, but yet you're diminishing yourself. Yep.
0: <laughs> I was like, that's what we always say. And I was telling Dr. Mood. Jackson beforehand, Sarah, that I, it's like, I work on a trauma unit, but obviously that is more physical trauma. That's what I'm seeing and I'm working with, but I, I guess you get I mean, it's maybe it is, it's not really compassionate fatigue for me personally, but I do hit this level of almost jadedness where you're seeing these like gruesome injuries and like all this gore and you're just like, oh, that's fine. Just another Monday, you know, and you don't really, it doesn't sit with you until later. You're like, this is kind of, this is really messed up. I need to process this Mm -hmm. in a healthy way, but so that secondary trauma I think comes later when I hits me a couple of weeks later and I'm crying for unknown reasons, but it's just going back to what I was feeling before. And it's just, I always have like this delayed response. So very interesting.
1: Yeah. I, I definitely, especially during COVID and obviously it's something that we have to talk about. I got to the point where I was experiencing so much, um, trauma, I I would say, you know, excess death, uh, high acuity, poor outcomes. All of that led to a numbing of myself outside of work. And it was really harmful. And my husband actually told me that he felt like I wasn't there for at least one full year. Um, I was there present. I was physically there. But my mind myself and my whole being was so enveloped in the work i was doing even if it was 3 days a week it still took up my entire life and it 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 created a num a numbness and i still think about that and regard it in that sense because that's what i felt and when i look back on it there's a lot I don't actually remember from the time that I worked um, through COVID and just 2020 through 2021, the end of 2021. It's hard for me to piece together remnants of that year and even like special dates. I'm not, I don't remember what we did for our birthdays in those years. I don't
2: remember the 4th of July. Like, yeah. And it's tough. Yeah. And I was going to say, and, and trauma. Has a way of changing how the brain process, um, not will process and receive information. So the more and more that you are exposed to it, we call it like a haze. Like you're actively like showing up, you're doing your job, but when it comes to really being present, although you're like doing, you're mentally not there. And oftentimes in the medical field, it's not acknowledged because, again, it's like you, you got to go. Like we have patients and you need to tend to these patients. So it creates the cycle of the numbness feeling like we're doing our job and we're not fully present. And the longer that it goes, that increases, you know, depression. It increases anxiety. I mean, and we discussed this earlier, but it increases like suicidal ideation. It's so, it's so, so real that oftentimes it just goes overlooked.
1: And I, I feel like that's why this podcast is here. It's why our sister organizations are here, Operation Happiness and Don't Clock Out. We realize there's a need for addressing the mental health crisis in healthcare, and particularly for nurses and bedside staff who have been traumatized over and over again and might not even realize it, or they might be still in that adrenaline state or that I have to get this done state where they don't have the time or the energy to process what they've been through. And
0: so our goal is to normalize that, right? Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Jackson, how did you personally get into trauma-specific therapy and helping others?
2: So, honestly, this profession found me. I never, ever thought I would be a therapist. It was not on, you know, how, like, growing up, you're like, oh, I want to do this. I never said I wanted to be a therapist. Um, However, I remember being in undergrad and... The core group of friends that started college with me, they like our group got smaller. And it was due to, you know, people being burnout of like school and just not even having the resources to navigate through college, which seems very simple. But when you don't have the resources, it makes it way harder So I remember taking a sociology class and I just fell in love with people. Like we were studying groups of people and how people interact in groups. And I just like fell in love with it. And I literally asked my professor, I was like, what can I do? What kind of job do I have to have so that I can work with people? Like, I don't want to like work in the medical field. I want to like work with people and make people better. And at first I thought I was going to do like, coaching but i became a therapist instead
1: and your field is so needed and under appreciated underfunded and y'all deserve so much more support and y'all also deserve mental health support right because you have to deal yes. with all of us <laughs> yes. and, and i you? said
2: earlier i i'm a therapist who goes to therapy Oh, I
1: love that. Yeah, I actually. So I went to therapy during the pandemic and um, we identified that I needed to start on an antidepressant. And because I was actually experiencing some very close to suicidal ideation symptoms. And so I have a question for you. So, with the pandemic, what type of mental health struggles have you been seeing amongst? Um, healthcare professionals, and just the community in general? And was there, has there been a difference pre-pandemic versus
2: now, even though we're kind of still in it, you know? (laughs) So what I had, especially on the onset of the pandemic, anxiety was very high. And from my adolescence clients all the way to my adult clients, like anxiety was so high because There were so many questions that we couldn't really answer. Um, And then what I'm seeing now, anxiety is still high, but depression and suicidal ideation is is very high. And as a clinician, I'm very concerned as we transition into the holidays that, you know, I, I have colleagues who are booked out until the end of January. So... The lack of access is is very impending, but people need it. Yes,
0: it is interesting too, because from a nursing standpoint, when you're at the hospital and you, like I was telling Dr. Jackson earlier, Sarah, that we've had quite a few instances of patients coming in with SI or suicidal ideation more frequently than I'm used to. Usually it's like every couple of months and now it's like once a week I see somebody. And usually they're young males it's the system's kind of weird in the hospital because what will happen was at least what I'm observing is it's a yes or no. You know, you do, you have your sitter there at mm-hmm. bedside, make sure they don't hurt themselves and have a, a therapist come in every day and talk to them and see if they need to be held voluntarily involuntarily, voluntarily, et cetera. But it's, I I always leave with this uneasy feeling because I'm very much of the mindset is I think everyone should get help. You know, especially if you're in that headspace, if you've had multiple attempts, what have you. Yeah. And it's hard for me as a nurse who makes these connections with these people and then they just go back home and you're like, well, now I don't know what's happening mm-hmm. to them. I feel like I want to like follow them in a non-weird way and make sure they're okay. But you know, you, so it just goes back to that question. It's like, oh, well, I'm fine. It's like, well, are you though? I mean, you can say that and cause you know that what that is, what's going to get you back home. But I just worry about everybody, I guess the nurse and me. So mm-hmm. it's just, it's the system's weird from the inside, you know, when you're in the hospital. So I don't know how it is outpatient, but I'm just saying.
2: (laughs) Well, and that's, and that is my train of thought. I always say, give them resources, give them access, even if it's like, you know, unsure or, cause sometimes people, and I think just with social media, you know, everybody posts stuff now. And so people have learned the system. So they'll say like, well, it was a thought that I had last week about harming myself, but I'm not thinking that this week. I'm still like, okay, you need some type of intervention or you, or there's further assessments that we can, we can, we can do.
1: Yeah. Because it's like, what, what do you have to prevent you from going back into that state of mind Mm -hmm. next week? And how can right. we protect you from that is the goal, is is that harm reduction goal, right? Right. And giving them the tools they need so that they don't get back into that place, even if they don't want to admit that maybe they actually are. But mm-hmm. providing them with something, some level of support is so special and important. So, yeah, it's the whole the whole world is hurting. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's got to be overwhelming. Dr. Jackson, especially in the field you're in. Right. But I'm sure you have the tools you need to not be overwhelmed by
2: that. Right.
1: (laughs) Especially like
2: when I, you know, have these conversations with leadership, I'm like, we all have a part in it. Like systems need to start normalizing mental health. Um, And it can be very simple, just, you know, having your employees do like a mental health check-in or, you know, normalizing like a four-day work week and building in, you know, a rest day. Now, what people do with their rest day is on them. But, you know, when we said the expectation that you work, 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 then somebody as an employee and I, you know, I need my job, I have responsibilities that I'm going to show up. Especially if, you know, I used to work for this company and I remember my supervisor, she would always say like, you can be replaced. And so when you hear that, it's like, well, I don't want to lose my job. So I'm going to show up even if I don't feel like showing up or even if I'm sick, like I'm going to show up because I don't want to be replaced. And so I feel like the systems, the leadership can normalize mental health through language and just incorporating it in the culture itself.
1: Yeah, I I love that. And I also think, you know, there's only so much we can do to protect someone from their mental health or to provide them with coping skills in response to their environment. But if we don't address the environment and particularly like working environments, and when it comes to healthcare, we know that they can be extremely stressful. We... We don't receive support from our institutions. A lot of our stressors come from our work. So if we don't address the environment, how much can uh, mental health support do if the things that are causing you all of this harm and stress aren't addressed as well? It needs to be done in tandem in my my thought process, especially when it comes to healing healthcare. Because Mm -hmm. we're very resilient. We know this. We've gone through so much just in the last two years and we've decided to put ourselves to the side and we've traditionally done so for decades. But at some point, it's not us that needs to do the work anymore, right? Right. It's the people who employ us, the people who have the power to create safe work environments and they're not doing so. And that's why so many fields, even outside of healthcare, are at a breaking point. Right. Yeah.
0: So obviously it's very specific for each person and their experience, Dr. Jackson, but how, or what does the process look like when you're going through someone and going like into therapy with someone and you're one-on-one with them and you're trying to help them with a traumatic experience? Like how does that work from a therapist perspective? I'm interested.
2: <laughs> so it starts off with an assessment and My goal is to make or to create the environment where I want it to be safe, but I want it to be like a brave space so that not only, you know, can the client open up, but they feel that what they are saying isn't going anywhere. And the idea of them sharing is to heal and get better. Now, during the assessment, I tell all of my clients, there are going to be some days that you do not like me. But in the relationship, that lets me know that we are doing the work because the process is, it's not easy. The reward is great, but it's not an easy process because for a lot of us, whether it's trauma related or not, we're doing a lot of unlearning in order to implement healthy coping skills.
0: I feel like so much of it, too, is subconscious or at least I know in my own personal mm-hmm. life it's like random things will come up why am I the way I am why did I respond that way and then it just goes back to childhood and things that happened and you you don't realize that until I'm like 29 now and things are coming up you know through therapy or what have you and it's just it's interesting how the brain works
2: yeah and, and being okay with letting your brain like fully process that like connect the dots because oftentimes it's like okay I don't want to think about it so we'll avoid or we'll like stuff it down and we will subconsciously tell ourselves like we'll come back to it but we don't. So being you know creating the space or the skill set to allow yourself to fully process through it is so important.
1: Yeah, just from personal experience, introspection and like vulnerability is so, so hard like looking at yourself and like how your childhood impacted you, how your own behaviors have changed as you grow into an adult and you start in a field and how you can even be harmful towards other people and acknowledging that and acknowledging how maybe your lack of coping skills has created um, barriers in your relationship or difficulties in your relationships. And maybe you're shutting people out and like, when you go through therapy and you find out these different things about yourself about why the why you are the way that you are, for me, I was like a a damn burst. <laughs> and out of nowhere, I started crying. I don't even know what it was that my therapist said, but there was a release valve that just mm-hmm. went off. And it was cathartic. and i I wanted to keep going to therapy because I wanted to chase that feeling of, God, I'm starting to really know myself. I'm starting to understand that the things that are outside of my control are okay and that it's fine and I can be okay. as And the what people around me think and what my family thinks and what the people I work with think, if it's not something positive, it's okay because they're entitled to how they feel, right? And I don't know, it was a lot for me but you, mm-hmm. you end up sharing things that you didn't even know were causing you harm or, or things that you were fixated on until they come out. <laughs> yes. And it's amazing the skill that you have, Dr. Jackson, and like therapists have to really just listen and then let people reveal what they want to reveal and what they might not even know they want to reveal. And then they do, and then they process and then it's just I don't know. I love it. I tell <laughs> everyone you need to go to therapy before yeah. you're in crisis. Go to therapy prophylactically, just to see what's going on. Because I promise you, it's right. probably something going on.
2: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> that was a long tan- tangent,
0: but
2: <laughs> but the, but the way you are describing, like as a therapist, I love when my patient can make the connection. Of like, whether it's a behavior, whether it's, you know, a type of viewpoint that they have, but when they can make the connection and find out what it, where it stems from and then have the option to like adjust and, or if it's like, you know, now I want to make this part of my, you know, I call it the moral compass and this is what I'm going to stand on. Like those moments are magical.
1: And you really do develop like a relationship with your therapist. And it's funny because you'll see the memes about it, but it's true. Like, how can you not? Like you do have some form of bond and it's bittersweet when you like graduate therapy. And I'm like, (laughs) because they're like, Sarah, we've made so much progress. You went from two days a week to once a month. And I don't think you need this anymore. What do you think? And I'm like, but I love seeing you. <laughs> but you're my I don't friend. Want to go.
0: <laughs> you're my
1: friend. And I love talking to you, but you're right. I'm okay right now. But maybe I can come back. And right. that's the truth is that it's not something that everyone needs once a week or once a month. Sometimes it's in 6 months you start to feel a certain way and you're like this is not okay. I'm not okay, maybe I should go back to therapy. And it's okay. They'll always be there. Maybe Mm -hmm. you might have to change therapists. Maybe they don't have availability. But when you find your person, it's like, it's hard to let them go. (laughs) Yeah, Dr. Jackson, I did have a question for you. So how do you think trauma-informed therapy could be made more accessible for nurses and other healthcare workers?
2: Honestly, I always struggle with... Especially in the healthcare, when it comes to like the EAP part of it, why there is not somebody contracted out who is trauma informed, even if it's like on a standby or a contractual basis. Um, because I think as a trauma informed therapist, there are some clients who come to me and You know, it's a two-month process, and then I transition them to another therapist. But I definitely feel like, specifically for healthcare workers, there needs to be some type of trauma-informed assessment done, ideally, I would say every six months, but at least yearly to get an idea of where you are at in regards to, like, your trauma responses. And then if it's high, then connecting with a specifically trauma-informed therapist. Because I think, too, in regards to different um, employee assistant programs, oftentimes they just contract with therapists and believe that a general therapist can treat trauma when reality of it is, is that a trauma therapist just comes with specific training.
1: Yeah, and like... And the EAP is so varied across the country. So it seems like these organizations are like, well, six sessions should be enough to fix you. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you got. And then you got to worry on, on insurance and use your co-pays and maybe your insurance doesn't cover it. So on top of the barrier of feeling like you might be retaliated against if you choose to go through EAP, because your employer will know that you decided to go through it. And Dr. Mm-hmm. Jackson, you have, you and I have talked about this since the beginning of "Don't Clock Out." Is the idea of on-site trauma therapy for these yeah. healthcare workers, and like that's still on my top like list of priorities? Is like a pilot program at an institution where mm-hmm. someone like you can be present for these clinicians and just be there, and it's not like a an invitation. It's someone might need this at some point. And we know this because we know that, and well, the general public might not know, but clinicians are ending their lives at work. That's the fact. Mm -hmm. They are ending their lives at work and especially in healthcare. And so how do we provide harm reduction? How do we prevent that? By letting them know that they're their experiences and their thoughts surrounding what they go through is not normal and that they deserve support and that it's not just what you signed up for. It's how do we help you cope through what you've signed up for? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm really hopeful. And I, I know we're going to work together, Dr. Jackson on this. At some point we're going to have this kind of project in a hospital because at the end of the day we're just going to keep losing people and we can't afford to keep losing people like that so we're at a breaking point so i appreciate you so much i'm just so happy you're here <laughs> <laughs> you.
0: like we all need a dr jackson or lives.
2: <laughs> and i mean i think like having this conversation like i'm so excited to have it but i think this conversation should be normalized yes like It should be normalized and even, you know, as far as healthcare workers go, you know, meeting with a trauma therapist, it might not have to be like a full hour, but if you have someone there available, you know, when something happens, like maybe going off the floor for like 15 to 20 minutes, just to kind of like, because even, um, and I tell my kids this all the time, like feel your feelings, but when we especially my nurses and my teachers, like when you have to like leave one room to go to the other, you're telling your brain that what we are feeling does not matter. And so then it becomes normalized. So then, you know, that's when suppression happens.
0: Yeah. That totally makes sense.
2: Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I,
1: I think to my, my cousin, I always share this story, but my cousin was, is a podiatry a physician, she's a podiatrist, but she was in residency during COVID in New Jersey. And they deployed the podiatry residents to the ICU and the emergency room in New York City, like ground zero of COVID. And she would tell me that they just didn't have the time to process anything, they would just keep going because that was the only way to keep people alive and that was the only thing that they knew how to do they my cousin is still traumatized by this she's Mm -hmm. she's a podiatrist now she's completed her training and she's no longer a resident physician but she wishes she had any other avenue because she doesn't feel like it was worth it like her like a decade of her life or more dedicated to this and She's finished with her uh her training and she's she wishes she was done. She wishes that she had any other avenue. And how is that sustainable? And it's all deeply rooted in her experiences um, and her trauma. And I just hope one day it gets addressed um, on, a, on a
0: larger scale.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. I just wanted to ask, because we love asking people this question: what is something that you do to fill up your cup? Outside of work, of
2: course. <laughs> I run. I run. That's my like thing. And it's not even, and people are like, so you work out. And I'm like, I don't even term it as like working out. It's my joy. And and when I get ready to go run, my kids are like, so are you going to get your joy? And I, that's, yeah, running. I love that. I love
0: how you, that's how they word it too, because it should be seen as that. That's why I exercise too. It's just to feel good. I
1: love that. And I love that your kids acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. And do they choose that for themselves too? Do they have their own things?
2: So my youngest son, he is a painter. That is so sweet. And I mean, to be very transparent, it was one point I forgot to go to the art store to get his like canvas canvas. And so, cause I love Amazon, <laughs> you know, I like ripped up an Amazon box and I like literally had him outside. Oh my gosh. Painting. I love that. Yeah. Creativity. And then my oldest one is a reader. Wow. Um, but he has this thing where, and he's just like his mom. I grew up reading. Um, but he re- reads two books at a time. One is like a serious book, which is like history. And then the other one is like, he calls this fun book. So if he's reading his fun book, that's him finding his joy. I love that. And I love that you've normalized
1: it at such a young age, like prioritizing yourself, choosing what fills up your cup, what makes you joyful. And mommy does it too. And (laughs) that should be like, we should be having those conversations with our children as well, because it sets them up for you know, in the future, when they really do need that support to get it, or even while they're young, getting that support. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. That's that telling. makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to thank you so much, Dr. Jackson. You're wonderful. Thank you for being here with us today. Um, and if our listeners would like to learn more about her or even utilize her services, you can find her on Instagram at doctor underscore Jacquinda J A Q U I N D A underscore Jackson. Or at her website, www.jacksonconsultingsllc.com. And stick around for next week as we dive more into mental health. Have a wonderful week, my friends. Bye.